This episode contains discussions of violence which some listeners may find upsetting. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. On the afternoon of May 13, 1981, an almost electric sense of anticipation filled the air in Vatican City. Upwards of 15,000 tourists and pilgrims from all over the world filled St. Peter's Square, eagerly awaiting the Pope's weekly blessing. Just before 5 p.m., His Holiness entered an open-top white fiat, affectionately known as the Pope-mobile. Flanked by several aides in dark suits, 60-year-old Pope John Paul II slowly rode through the gathered crowd grasping at outstretched hands. After about 30 minutes of waving at adoring believers, the Popemobile stopped on the southwest side of the Basilica's steps. Then, in an instant, the entire mood changed. A loud gunshot rang out, followed by another. The Pope clutched at his chest and fell backwards into the arms of his aide. Scarlet bloodstains spread across his pristine white robes. Panic and despair spread through the square as people murmured and shouted in various languages. The Pope had been shot. The gunman, 23-year-old Mehmet Ali Acha, was caught red-handed at the scene of the crime but his case was anything but open and shut. Indeed, the investigation uncovered a trail of intrigue that led to the highest echelon of Cold War politics. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Normally, we take things story by story, conspiracy by conspiracy. But in these four episodes, we're doing something a little differently. We're exploring the secrets of the Vatican, one of the oldest and most influential organizations in the world and one of the most mysterious. In this final episode of our four-part special, we'll closely examine an attack on the beating heart of the church, Pope John Paul II. On May 13, 1981, a Turkish militant opened fire on the Pope in broad daylight, sending a shockwave around the world. While it initially seemed that the assassin was a crazed fanatic who had acted alone, The speedy trial only raised more questions than answers, leading many to believe that the attempt on John Paul II was part of a larger conspiracy. Coming up, John Paul II becomes head of the Catholic Church, making a slew of enemies along the way. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The man who later became John Paul II grew up in a perfect storm of world events which shaped him into a compassionate and politically conscious leader. He was just the right man to lead the church through the rough waters of the Cold War. He was born Karol Wojtyła in Poland in 1920, and he grew up in a Catholic household. As fate would have it, he lived right next door to a church. But despite receiving communion and being confirmed, the priesthood wasn't always in Carol's future. A gifted student, he went to college in the city of Krakow. He studied everything culturally Polish, literature, theater, and poetry. This foreshadowed the staunch Polish pride he would demonstrate later as Pope. However, his studies were cut short when Germany invaded Poland in 1939. Undoubtedly, witnessing the military takeover of his country had a profound impact on the 19-year-old Carol. It certainly seems to have contributed to a rebellious streak. Carol defied the Nazi occupation by participating in an underground theatrical group with the goal of preserving Polish culture. But while Carol quietly resisted the occupancy of his homeland, tragedy soon struck closer to home. In 1941, Carol returned home from work to find that his father had died of a heart attack, completely alone. Devastated by the loss, Carol prayed with the body through that entire night. The death of his father had a profound effect on him, including leading him on a new path toward priesthood. By fall of the following year, Carol secretly began attending seminary classes, secret because it was illegal under Nazi law. Ordained in November of 1946, Carol devoted his ministry to preaching love and the spiritual well-being of young people. His reputation grew, and in 1967, he became a cardinal. But even as he became more of an authority figure within the church, he retained his youthful, rebellious streak. For example, Carol oversaw the construction of a new church in Krakow against the wishes of the communist regime in Poland. 
Since its inception, the Soviet Union had taken a firm anti-church stance, and this policy extended to their satellite states, like Poland. Karol Wojtyła not only grew up during the horrors of the Third Reich, but witnessed the staunch atheist oppression that followed with communism. In turn, it made him an outspoken critic of Marxism-Leninism. In 1978, Carroll was elected pope and took the name John Paul II. He was the first non-Italian pope selected in 455 years. In many ways, this was a harbinger for the kind of radical figure he'd become in the following years. John Paul II refused to be silent on political matters. Unlike previous pontiffs, he wasn't going to be shy when it came to wielding his moral authority as head of the church. To that end, John Paul II became a worldly, engaged, and charismatic leader. He traveled more than any other pope, which made him relevant, popular, and beloved. But his global influence also made him a potentially dangerous adversary for political opponents. While John Paul II rose to power and popularity, one man sought to silence the pope's message forever. Mehmet Ali Acha was born in 1958 in Malatya province, Turkey. Like John Paul II, Acha grew up in the midst of a terrible wave of political violence. At the time, Turkey was caught in the crossfire between left and right-wing militants. Military coups were the norm. Despite the violence and upheaval raging around him, young Acha focused on reading and schoolwork he excelled in his college entrance exams and seemed to have a bright future ahead of him. But then things took a turn. While in his late teens, Acha became a petty criminal. During this period, he also became politically radicalized. Before long, he began associating with a Turkish ultra-nationalist group called the Grey Wolves. The Grey Wolves promoted pan-Turkism, hoping to unite Turkish people around Central Asia and Southeastern Europe, and they were willing to use violence to accomplish this goal. Perhaps it was with that purpose in mind that in 1977, Aja allegedly snuck into Lebanon and attended a terrorist training camp. There, he claims to have learned about weapons and guerrilla war tactics. Two years after his training, Aja committed his first act of terror. In February of 1979, he shot and killed a Turkish newspaper editor who had been publishing critical articles about far-right groups like the Grey Wolves. It seems that the Grey Wolves leader might have ordered the assassination personally. Aja was caught, convicted, and sentenced to life in a high-security military prison. However, just five months later, he miraculously escaped by donning a soldier's uniform and strolling through eight heavily guarded doors. Back on the loose, Aja showed no signs of staying quiet. Indeed, he had already set his sights on a much higher profile target. Just one day after his breakout, Aja allegedly sent a threatening message to a Turkish newspaper. 
he railed against Western imperialists who feared the power of a unified Turkey. Specifically, he demanded that Pope John Paul II's upcoming trip to Turkey be canceled. If it wasn't, he promised that he would definitely kill the Pope. The Pope's trip went forward and without a hitch. Whether or not Aja even made an attempt in 1979 is unclear, but that didn't mean he was all bark and no bite. He just needed to bide his time. Over the next several months, Aja moved around from place to place in Europe and the Mediterranean. As a wanted man, he made sure to stay under the radar. After two years on the run, Aja surfaced in Rome in early May 1981. The time had come to go through with his threat against the Pope. His chosen date, May 13th. When that fateful day finally came, Aja blended into the throng of thousands in St. Peter's Square, looking like another tourist taking in the sights. But when John Paul neared the steps of St. Peter's Basilica, Aja took aim and fired. There's some dispute about how many bullets were actually fired. Only evidence of two bullets were reportedly recovered from the scene. However, some witnesses said they heard up to four gunshots. The Pope was immediately rushed to the hospital and into surgery, which lasted over five hours. The bullets came close to several vital organs, but miraculously just missed. While his injuries were very serious, he went on to make a full recovery. Meanwhile, back in St. Peter's Square, Mehmet Ali Aja was caught at the scene of the crime and by the unlikeliest of people. As Aja was trying to escape, an Italian nun named Sister Letizia grabbed him by the arm and refused to let him go. The gun was knocked out of his hands in the commotion. He shouted that it wasn't him who had shot the Pope, but the nun wasn't buying it. She knew what she saw. In no time at all, the authorities grabbed Aja. He was thrown into prison where he awaited his trial, one that the whole world would be watching. However, Aja's arrest was merely the beginning of a long quest to find out what really led him to St. Peter's Square. And it would take years to uncover the true reason that he tried to murder the leader of the Catholic Church. Coming up, an international conspiracy to kill the Pope. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. On May 13, 1981, Mehmet Ali Aja attempted to assassinate Pope John Paul II. Though the Pope was struck several times, he survived. Adding insult to injury, His Holiness publicly forgave Aja just four days later. Unfortunately for Aja, Italy's criminal justice system was not as forgiving. Aja's trial lasted only three days. The outcome was a guilty verdict, followed by a life sentence in an Italian prison. During the entire affair, Aja maintained that he acted on his own, without any support or direction. However, not everyone was buying the lone wolf theory. ABC cameraman Lowell Newton, who had been at the scene of the crime, photographed a different man fleeing with a gun in his hand. Naturally, this suggested that Aja had a partner at the very least. And if Aja wasn't acting alone, how many were part of the plot? Killing the Pope certainly seemed like such an audacious plot that it would require more planning and coordination than one man could realistically handle. Plus, Aja wasn't just any man. He was a convicted murderer, a fugitive from prison, and he had ties to militant groups often described as neo-fascist. Traipsing through a public place like St. Peter's Square should have been impossible for him. Yet somehow, he was able to travel freely across Europe and get within shooting range of one of the most protected men on the planet. This seems nearly impossible without Aja having some kind of protection and support. The matter of accomplices had been ignored during the trial to secure a quick conviction. But after the trial, the presiding judge delved further into the case, determined to get to the bottom of what really happened. After some digging, an Italian court stated that Aja was sent to Rome by hidden mines and that he had merely been used as a pawn. The court didn't yet have enough information to say who Aja was working for. But whatever information they had was enough to reopen the case. Aja was hauled out of prison for interrogation, but he seemed determined not to cooperate at first. It's possible that Aja didn't want to publicly implicate violent groups for fear they would use their connections to have him killed in prison. For months, Aja seems to have refused to cooperate with investigators. But then, nearly a year after his conviction, he suddenly changed his mind and started to talk. Perhaps he had held on to hopes of another miraculous prison break, like back in Turkey. Or perhaps his time in solitary confinement made him realize he had nothing to lose by talking. Whatever the motivation, once Aja started naming names, he didn't hold back. He not only implicated the right-wing Grey Wolves, he also mentioned left-wing terrorists and the Turkish Mafia. 
But his most shocking allegation was that he claimed to have had the support of the Bulgarian Secret Service, known as the Dujavna Sigurnost, or DS. This was a bombshell revelation. It basically confirmed that there had been a high-level international plot to assassinate the Pope. And this was no idle accusation. Aja had receipts. Aja identified a man named Sergei Antonov as his DS handler. Antonov was an employee of the Bulgarian National Airline, which also reportedly had close ties to the KGB. It's a handy cover if you need to surreptitiously fly agents in or out of sensitive locations. And there was evidence connecting Antonov to the assassination. For one, Aja had Antonov's phone number on him when he was arrested. And intriguingly, a man who bore a striking resemblance to Antonov was spotted in St. Peter's Square during the attack. By November 1982, about a year after reopening the case, the authorities felt they had enough information to arrest Sergei Antonov for having taken part directly in the attack on the Pope. Two other Bulgarians and four Turkish men were also charged as complicit. However, only Antonov and two of the Turkish suspects were brought into custody. The rest flew the coop. Still, the court proceeded with its case against Antonov, and he certainly didn't help his defense. At first, he appeared nervous and quiet, and then he stopped speaking altogether. But even without his cooperation, Italian law enforcement continued to uncover new information, and the scope of the conspiracy became clear. In late 1984, Judge Martella released a statement with the findings. Martella asserted that Sergei Antonov was one of three Bulgarians who participated in the assassination attempt in Rome. But their co-conspirators in the attack were the Turkish Mafia and the Grey Wolves. One prominent Italian newspaper concluded that the plot was conceived and executed by the Bulgarian Secret Service. At this point, the theory that was known as the Bulgarian Connection became more than just a theory. Multiple Bulgarians had been indicted, and a court of law had found sufficient evidence that there was a conspiracy to kill the Pope. Such declarations should have sent shockwaves throughout the world. However, despite the growing evidence, the United States and much of the Western world seemed determined to believe that Aja was just a crazed lone gunman. But a few enterprising journalists, like American reporter Claire Sterling, believed in the Bulgarian connection theory. Relying on sources she'd cultivated over decades of work, Sterling dove headfirst into the conspiracy. In 1984, she published the book The Time of the Assassins, in which she laid out the plot step by step. And it all started in 1979 with a miraculous prison escape. The fact that Mehmet Aja was able to just walk out the front door of a Turkish prison suggested he had friends in high places. Friends like the Turkish mafia boss, Abuzer Ugurlu. Even if the boss didn't directly help break Aja out of prison, he did likely help him once he was out. 
Orlu allegedly made arrangements with the leader of the Grey Wolves to get Aja money and a forged Indian passport. Once Aja had the documents, he was able to travel to Bulgaria. Why Bulgaria? As it turns out, according to Sterling, Orlu was also on the payroll of the Bulgarian Secret Service, the DS, and he was about to help them coordinate one of the biggest, most sensitive operations ever. Once in Bulgaria, Aja was reportedly introduced to Orlu's partner, a drugs and arms smuggler named Bakir Chalink, as well as three DS agents Chalink was connected to. It doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to infer that Chalink was acting on behalf of his friends in the DS when Aja says he made him an offer, a cool 1.2 million US dollars to kill Pope John Paul II. In all likelihood, Aja didn't care why his sponsors wanted the Pope dead. The money and freedom was all the motivation he needed to accept the contract. Of course, Aja was going to have help. His accused co-assassin was fellow Grey Wolf, Oral Chelik. With the deal settled and a plan formulated, Aja spent the next nine months crisscrossing Europe and the Middle East with his new fake passport. This was likely done to distance himself from the other people involved in the plot and create some plausible deniability. By May 1981, the time came to put the assassination in motion. According to Sterling, Oral Chelik was sent to an Austrian arms dealer where he bought the intended murder weapon, a 9mm Browning automatic pistol. The next step was to conduct some recon. Aja and two DS agents took a trip to St. Peter's Square to scope out the future crime scene. On May 12th, a day before the planned attack, one of the DS agents delegated the assignments. While Aja and Chelik acted as shooters, two DS agents would detonate bombs to cause a distraction. That way, the shooters could escape in the ensuing chaos. On the day of May 13th, Sergei Antonov drove Aja and a DS agent to St. Peter's Square. According to Aja, the plan was for them to meet up after the assassination and the Bulgarians would smuggle them out of Italy in a special truck. But the plan fell apart almost immediately. When the time came, Aja didn't manage to fire off all the shots he had planned. And then one of the bombers failed to detonate the bomb to cover Aja's escape. Aja was left holding a pistol in the middle of St. Peter's Square. As he tried to escape, he was quickly caught by Sister Laetitia, who, interestingly, might have saved his life. It's been speculated that it was highly likely Aja would be killed right after the assassination to tie up any loose ends that might point back to Bulgaria. But because Sister Laetitia refused to let go, Aja was stuck in the crowd, making it impossible for his accomplices to take him out. Instead, he was arrested, and his getaway truck left Rome without him. So that's the Bulgarian connection theory in a nutshell. 
As we've seen, there's ample evidence that suggests the DS, the Turkish Mafia, and the Grey Wolves all played a role in the attack. It was a triangle of crime and corruption, and Aja sat right in the middle. Perhaps the most incriminating connection is that Sergei Antonov, already suspected to be a DS associate, appears to have been caught on surveillance in St. Peter's Square during the attack. Seems strange for a Bulgarian agent to be so far away from his homeland at such a critical moment. Of course, Bulgarian authorities deny having any part in the plot. The party line is that the accusations were an invention of the CIA and other Western intelligence agencies, just to make the Soviet Union look bad. Remember, all of these covert events took place at the height of the Cold War. Tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States were still strong. This has another startling implication. To maintain a strong position in the international conflict, the USSR was holding tight control of southeastern Europe, including Bulgaria. That means if the Bulgarian Secret Service organized a hit on the Pope, the order really came from the top echelons of the Soviet Union. Coming up, the Soviet Union tries to kill the Pope, but the world looks the other way. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. After the shooting of Pope John Paul II, Mehmed Ali Aja was quickly tried and convicted for the crime. At first, the courts and the media seemed to agree that he had acted alone. But things changed as more information came out, and as Aja was more forthcoming with names of his accomplices. It became increasingly clear that, far from being a lone wolf, Aja had been part of an extensive plot, coordinated in part by agents of the Bulgarian Secret Service, the DS. At the height of the Cold War, the DS was essentially synonymous with the KGB. That means that the true power behind the attack on John Paul II, the people that really wanted the Pope dead, were the leaders of the Soviet Union. American journalist Claire Sterling was one of the first to support this idea. She asserts that no DS officer would be so bold as to put out a hit on the Pope without explicit approval from Soviet leadership. One of Sterling's sources, Colonel Stefan Serdlev, was the highest-ranking member of the Bulgarian DS to ever defect. As a former insider, 
He claimed that a decision as big as killing the Pope would, quote, have to be made in the Soviet Politburo by General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev himself. Only then would the head of the KGB be entrusted with its execution. Let's take this idea at face value for a minute and accept that the KGB was well aware of the plot and, in all likelihood, put the wheels in motion themselves. To understand what could have motivated the USSR to try to kill Pope John Paul II, we need to dig into His Holiness's personal politics. As we mentioned earlier, even before he was Pope, John Paul II was an outspoken critic of communism based on his experiences in Poland. And from the moment he was elected Pope in 1978, he was a thorn in the Soviet Union's side, especially because he remained deeply involved in Polish politics. In 1979, John Paul II planned a visit to his homeland. Soviet leader Brezhnev was so opposed to the trip that he tried, and failed, to convince communist officials in Poland to stop it. If Brezhnev was concerned that John Paul II would ignite a wave of anti-communist sentiment in Poland, he was right to worry. Six million people showed up to hear the Pope speak, which was one-sixth of Poland's entire population at the time. And when Pope John Paul addressed his audience, he didn't deliver soft platitudes. He spoke directly against communism. He asserted that Christian and Marxist worldviews were diametrically opposed, and that the church's function was to make people more confident, more courageous, conscious of their rights and duties. A year later, a trade union called the Solidarity Labor Movement was formed, with the goal of using civil resistance to fight for workers' rights. Within just months of its founding, Solidarity had 10 million members, and John Paul II soon became a leading force behind the organization. As Claire Sterling writes, Solidarity was more than a mere trade union. It was a popular consensus, an expression of the people's will for better and more representative government, personal liberty, and above all, national independence. This meant that solidarity was often squarely at odds with the communist regime. And with John Paul II as an outspoken proponent, it put him directly in the USSR's crosshairs. In March of 1981, a Soviet political journal described the Pope as a cunning and dangerous ideological enemy and a perfidious and backward toady of the American militarists. As tensions grew, John Paul continued to stand with the Solidarity Movement and with Poland as a whole. And he wasn't just talk. He was willing to back up his support with action. His Holiness informed the Kremlin that if Russia invaded Poland, he would leave his position in Rome and stand with his people. The gauntlet had been thrown. There's a simple reason why the Pope's support for the Solidarity Movement posed such a threat. If Poland rejected communism, what was to stop other Soviet satellite nations from doing the same? With the Pope becoming an existential threat to the USSR's existence, it's easy to see why the Kremlin might be eager to neutralize him. Of course, they couldn't directly have the blood on their hands, 
It needed to be outsourced, something that was standard operating procedure for the KGB for decades. According to John Barron, an expert on the KGB, the Soviet Union decided in late 1962 or early 1963 to entrust future assassinations not to Soviet personnel, but to hire foreign criminals and illegal agents of other nationalities who could not easily be linked to the Soviet Union. But for all the USSR's efforts to muddy the waters and create plausible deniability, their fingerprints were all over the assassination attempt of Pope John Paul II. In 1983, the New York Times reported that a Bulgarian official had defected and told French authorities in no uncertain terms that the KGB was behind the plot. And in 2006, an Italian commission made it official. They issued a report asserting that, beyond all reasonable doubt, the leaders of the USSR took the initiative to eliminate the Pope. It makes perfect sense why the USSR was so eager to deny their involvement. The real mystery is why the Western world went along with the ruse at first. American historian Michael Ledeen tackled that very question in his article, The Bulgarian Connection and the Media. Ledeen points out that for almost a year after the attempt, Claire Sterling was the only American journalist who was focused on the Bulgarian angle. And it wasn't just that Western media outlets weren't covering the case. Some publications actively denied the idea of the Bulgarian Connection, in December of 1982, a month after Sergei Antonov and his associates were arrested, the New York Times wrote that U.S. officials remain intrigued but unconvinced by allegations that Bulgaria instigated the attempted assassination. And as late as January 1983, a CIA spokesman told reporters that Aja was too unbalanced and unreliable to be part of such a scheme. Even though, by that point, plenty of information had been uncovered to support the conspiracy. So why all the effort to deny the theory? Again, it comes back to the Cold War. The U.S. and USSR were locked in an escalating arms race. And with tensions running so high, both sides were wary of doing anything that might heat things up and provoke military action. So, even though the Soviets were public enemy number one, it was more comfortable for U.S. officials to ignore evidence of the Kremlin's involvement. An attempted hit on the Pope is something that would have demanded a response, which might have led to a disastrous escalation like nuclear war. But as time went on, the media began to accept the Bulgarian connection. Michael Ledeen argues that journalists shifted gears and very tentatively acknowledged the Soviet involvement in an effort to minimize fallout. In this case, it seems like the conspiracy theory of the Bulgarian connection might actually be true, depending on whose evidence you believe. Even the Pope himself is said to have believed that the Kremlin was behind the attempt on his life. In December of 1983, John Paul II visited Aja in prison and forgave him. 
Allegedly, he told Aja that he knew the KGB was responsible, so he understood that it wasn't personal. Interestingly, this same meeting provided fodder for a different conspiracy theory, one that involves the infamous third secret of Fatima. When the third secret was revealed to the public in 2000, the Vatican asserted that it foretold the assassination attempt on the Pope. After all, the attempt did happen on the 64th anniversary of the day Our Lady of Fatima first appeared before Lucia, Jacinta, and Francisco. Aja himself gave credence to this theory shortly after his arrest. He claimed that he had shot the Pope on Our Lady's behalf in order to fulfill the prophecy of the third secret. What makes this so intriguing is that Aja said this almost 20 years before the third secret was released to the public, which means that either the Pope let him in on the secret's prophecy, or he somehow knew about it on his own. However, like much of what Aja said in his early days, he later reversed his claims. In 2010, Aja was granted clemency and released from prison at age 52. Once he was out, he wrote a book that claimed Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran, was the one who really ordered the hit on the Pope. Aja's constantly changing story does make it difficult to believe anything he says. However, there might be enough evidence for the Bulgarian connection theory that we don't have to rely solely on his word. And it looks like the third secret of Fatima might have been accurate. Russia might have become an enemy of the church and might have had a hand in the Pope's assassination attempt. As we discussed last week, once John Paul II recovered, he finally fulfilled Our Lady's request by consecrating Russia. Coincidentally or not, within the next decade, the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War ended. As for John Paul II, he remained Pope until his death in 2005 at the age of 84. And in the years since, the Catholic Church has not, to our knowledge, been infiltrated by the Antichrist. Perhaps Our Lady's visions of Armageddon were fully averted. But there are countless other mysteries and prophecies that might still be hiding in the Vatican secret archives. Until the archives are fully open to the public, we may never know what's inside. Or what controversial chapter in Vatican history is awaiting us next. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with our regular programming. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. 
This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Nani Aquilagu, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Joe Guerra. Fact-checking by Anya Barely and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Thank you.